0: Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation. Automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network. Gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network. Automate your network. Find out more at itential.com packetpushers. Internet exchange points are networks you can use to connect to some other exchange participant. And it sounds like maybe that's a service provider thing, and it can be, but IXPs are useful for businesses too. And in this episode of Heavy Networking, we're gonna learn about IXPs and nonprofit IXPs especially. What are these organizations? How are they different from ISPs? Why might you want to join one and how does the networking work? Our guests are Matt Peterson of the San Francisco Metropolitan Internet Exchange and Jim Troutman of the Northern New England Neutral Internet Exchange. It should be noted that this is not the primary uh, thing that occupies these gentlemen. They do this work in their copious spare time. So Jim and Matt, welcome to both of you. Thank you for making the time. And uh, Matt, let's start with you. Give us a, a quick overview of what SFMix, the San Francisco Metropolitan Internet Exchange, is and is all about.
1: Yeah, so SFMix is an Internet Exchange based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're at seven uh, carrier neutral data centers uh, throughout the area, and we started roughly in 2006.
2: Very good. And Jim, the same question to you. What's uh, Neenix all about? So Neenix is a small not-for-profit uh, internet exchange servicing northern New England. Uh, right now we have two physical locations in Portland, Maine and Orono, Maine, and we are in our fifth year of existence. Excellent. Thank you for the intro,
0: gentlemen, uh, SF Mix and Neenix. Now, we're talking to an enterprise audience here on Packet Pushers Heavy Networking, whereas most of these folks, we definitely got some service provider people, but I think for the enterprise folks that have never considered connecting to an IXP, we should start with some definitions, some kind of get a baseline for our conversation established, like peering, transit, the role BGP plays in all of this, et cetera. Matt, you want to take a crack at that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think there's really two definitions to define here. You know, what is peering and transit, and how do those relate to BGP or the protocol that's used to exchange routing information on the global internet? With BGP, there's a unique AS number or an autonomous system number. This is a two-byte or a four-byte number that basically uniquely identifies your network on the global internet as a whole. What you buy at home today is what's called transit. And that's basically buying service from a provider that transits you from one network to another. So you may be buying internet from Comcast or Sonic or Monkey Brains, those are providers in in my region in San Francisco, and they transit you from their network to the network you wish to reach, such as Google or Netflix, Facebook, that sort of thing. Again, that's transit. Peering is where you're directly connecting between those ASs or those unique uh, networks on the global internet. So the example there, again, would be an eyeball uh, connecting directly to, say, a content network, Uh, again, such as an Akamai, a Netflix, Facebook, that sort of thing.
0: Got it. Okay. Now, there's, there's a big difference here, I think, to bring out between transit and peering. If I am an ISP customer, I just want Internet service. That's that transit that you described. I'm getting connectivity to anywhere and everywhere with that Internet transit connection peering is a different service and what you're providing as an IXP is more about that peering where i'm able to use the IXP to peer with someone else some other autonomous system that's connected to the IXP is that the right way to think about it
1: yeah i you know i think that the jim has some really interesting examples particularly in his region where he's got a mixture of you know eyeballs or municipalities interconnecting with, you know, regional ISPs that would really drive this point home than the examples we have in a more developed IXP, you know, out in the Bay Area.
2: Sure. So I I think a big distinction to make is that transit is generally something you pay for. There is a monetary exchange. Peering may have some monetary exchanges to, you know, pay for the port, to pay for the existence of the facility but once you're there generally peering is settlement free there is no money exchanged between the entities that are peering whereas transit pretty much always involves some payment
0: okay um and so the ixP then, well, let's back up a step. Why why would I go this route with the IXP? If I if I choose the IXP way to connect to these different networks, in, in a sense, I could go, well, what's the point? The internet is, is a big mesh. I could think of it that way. Somewhat, somewhat optimized, I guess. I know I'm going to be able to connect. So what is an IXP bringing to the table that I'm not getting done with an ISP? So when you think
1: about an Internet exchange, there's both administrative and technical benefits, and then there's the IXP facilitating that interconnection. One of the analogies that I like to think about is an airport. When you go to an airport, you can connect to different airlines, and they facilitate that usually in a single building or multiple terminals. And that's really their function is the facilitation of getting from one provider to another. The airport doesn't run the airline. It doesn't dictate whether it's Boeing or an Airbus plane. They just provide the pipes, if you will. Uh, A little bit different, in this case, obviously that's gangways versus, you know, SFP ports or fiber cables. And the internet exchanges are very similar. They provide a platform, and we go into more technical details what that actually is, to interconnect with multiple organizations essentially in one shot. So for example, if you're in a data center, and you're an eyeball network, you run uh, an ISP that sells, say, wireless or microwave services to end users or businesses and enterprises, et cetera. You want to get as close as you can to various content providers. Again, these are usually CDNs and other large providers that we, you can interconnect with. One inefficient way of doing that would be to run a cable to all of those various networks. That would be very expensive. There'd be a lot of configuration and maintenance. You'd have to burn router ports or switch ports to facilitate that. With an IXP, you can get one cable, and anyone else that's joined the IXP, you can interconnect with them logically. So it allows a, a single physical connection to reach
2: multiple networks. There's other advantages. I mean, really, the the primary advantage is going to be performance and cost. Those are two different things to think about for your average residential isp with your netflix traffic your cdn traffic your google traffic that traffic may represent 50 percent or more of your peak nighttime traffic so if you're able to peer with any of those entities and get those bits from their network uh, without having to pay somebody else that's a big cost advantage it's also can be a big performance advantage particularly if the ix is close to you and who you're trying to get the bits from is close to the IX. uh, So the traffic doesn't have to travel as far to get to your network.
1: Yeah. And I would clarify that an IXP is again, not a replacement for a transit provider. Again, a transit provider is reaching the entire global internet. You know, when you're peering it's direct relationships from one AS or one unique network to, to another. And as Jim mentions, not only is it geared for, you know, lowering operational costs and uh, improving latency. There's also some really nice side effects of uniting potentially direct competitors or your local networking community together. So it's not uncommon for inter-exchanges to have, say, a mailing list or some sort of, you know, Slack channel or a Discord to allow for communication to coordinate uh, those various peering sessions, uh, replacement of hardware, uh, just a feedback source that you wouldn't normally have within the local, you know, regional networking community. There's also some resiliency that's made available from an internet exchange. Again, kind of building more of a mesh of the internet or another branch or a tree, if you will, um, that one ex- it would not exist uh, without ISPs, you know, participating in internet exchanges collaboratively with content providers.
2: one of the other major uh, reasons for an internet exchange to exist is to keep local traffic local. And at least certainly for Neenix, that was one of the the primary reasons we started the IX was uh, I would very frequently be sitting in Portland, Maine, working at a client office, trying to connect to some business partner office that I could literally see out the window across the bay at their other building. And I would watch the packets go from Portland, Maine to Chicago and back or New York City and back. And I thought, this is silly. The packet needs to go two miles. Why is it going 800 miles?
0: Yeah, I've experienced the same thing, Jim, just with something as simple as a uh, standing up a VSP somewhere where the closest data center to me, even though I'm in New Hampshire, it is not Boston or New York City. It's Chicago, just because of the the way the internet connection connectivity up here happens to work. Why in the world would that be? You know, and that that, that would be exacerbated if I was trying to connect to someone right here in the region. It's uh, it's nuts. So,
1: and that that is the common genesis for uh, most internet exchanges. Is perfume, you know. That is the common genesis for most internet exchanges. That certainly was the case for SF Mix. We started in San Francisco. All of our traffic was going to San Jose and back again. Uh, The same for sort of infamous large internet exchanges. Uh, The six in Seattle, for example, a lot of their traffic, you know, originated in one floor of the building, would go down to San Jose in California, and then back up to Washington and Seattle. Again, really inefficient. So that's a a common reason to start an internet exchange is to, again, lower that... uh, latency and increase the performance as much as possible in a financially efficient manner.
0: But when the three of us were talking about this show offline, one of the things that I had a misconception about regarding IXP is that it's not like a mini ISP where if you plug in, anybody can connect to anybody. And now it's just like this little regional internet. It's a much more intentional thing where you connect to the IXP, but then if you want to connect to someone else that's in the IXP, you've got to build an agreement and then do the peering and so on. And so the IXP is more like... Uh, 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 like a platform that a uh, common place everybody gathers and you can connect, you have the ability, but it's not an automatic thing. We're like, Oh, these are all the people you're going to be connected to locally. Now it's, it's again, very specific where those connections are built.
2: Absolutely. I I like to tell people that an IX is really a marketplace. Uh, it's like you have a bunch of vendors who come into a single building and they're able to exchange goods and services with, the public and each other, but they don't have to. If they're just physically present at that marketplace, uh, no, almost no IXs will actually force participants to peer with anybody else. Peering is always optional,
1: yeah, as mentioned earlier, typically those formalized relationships that you're thinking about are usually a handshake or an email. Uh, this is what's called you know settlement free peering. Uh, unfortunately, you know, historically, the way that settlement-free peering was negotiated was typically at a networking conference, potentially not at a sober state. Um, that's obviously changed in COVID times. Uh, really, the, the differences now are just coordinating that session, that BGP routing session, typically over email. Uh, there are some third-party services that can help facilitate that, uh, a list of members, and a little bit more efficient to configure that in network equipment what I was trying to allude to was basically peer and DB and, and a route server yeah and I'm not sure how we want to bring those in um, I think it's important that we clarify one cable get you access to the the salad bar if you will or the participants but you still have to negotiate sessions with each of them but they have they may have chosen to set up a route server session and everyone that sets up in the route server it's sort of one shot if you will I'm not quite sure the best way to
0: you just said it's it. Well, yeah. You just said it. And I know you were thinking you were you were off, uh, off the air, Matt, but hey, listeners, you just got to peek behind the curtain because Matt just nailed it uh, and, and made it clear for us. So, so that's right. You get that, you know, one cable upon through which you can connect to a bunch of different folks, but you're setting up individual BGP um peering agreements, if you will, with with everyone that is wants to peer with you as well. Again, not you're not peering to the IXP. And so actually, here's a, here's a question for both of you. The IXP is effectively transparent to me. It is from a BGP perspective, I guess, or?
2: Yeah, IX's work at layer two, they're generally switches, distributed switches, uh, often cases. Uh, almost every IXP operates some sort of BGP route reflector, which just makes life easy. If everybody on the exchange sets up a BGP session to the route reflector, then you don't have to build sessions to every other member. Um, Some entities don't use route reflectors at all as policy, and they like to have finer control over who they peer with. Uh, But the overall infrastructure of the IX is literally Ethernet switches uh, to change Ethernet frames, and they are usually restricted to just transmit IPv4 and IPv6 frames.
0: Hmm. You make it sound so
2: easy, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it, it's an inter, uh, something I think I should share is, um, you know, when When we started Neenix, I was initially under the perception that the technical challenges of running an IX and making the IX work would really be where the work was, and that was going to be a lot of work. It turns out that the technical side is actually relatively straightforward and easy. Uh, What was very difficult was the politics.
0: Politics? What do you mean politics, as in... Well, what, what what could you mean? I mean, if there's a bunch of different folks that are connected to the IXP politics between those members of the uh, of the exchange.
2: There can be that for, for sure, and certainly on the larger exchanges, but politics more in the sense of uh, does an entity wish to connect or not? And uh, some entities, uh, particularly, let's say, more older and incumbent telecoms, uh, Mm-hmm. Generally, don't exchange two IXs because they feel that their network is very, very uh, expensive and and gold plated, and you should absolutely pay them for any of the packets uh, that you want to send to their network. And they don't want to do this uh, this settlement free thing because I mean, that's just a weird business. Maybe. Well, <laughs> y- yes, antiquated you know, it's, it, it, frankly, it's mostly those older telecom DSL networks and uh, and some of the cable operators.
1: Yeah, I would agree that, you know, a route reflector or, or sometimes known as a route server really is that, that easy button to, you know, facilitate joining IX very efficiently. And the politics are, yeah, not to be understated. And I completely <laughs> agree with Jim. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for 15 plus years and the technical problems are probably 2% of our of brain focus, if you will. Um, The the politics are a substantial amount. You know, a classic example is in Seattle. The city had renegotiated the franchise agreement with their cable operator. Um, They have several cable operators there, but one of them was Comcast. Comcast was forced to join the Seattle Internet Exchange for some amount of time. But the requirement from the franchise organization and the city was basically you needed to physically connect to the IX. You didn't have to actually set up any BGP sessions with anyone <laughs> on the exchange. Um, <laughs> so on. there are there are various loopholes like that. Um, and you'll see, you know we'll talk a little bit later about caches that have become very popular uh, that are basically embedded into networks. And so there are some organizations that are basically pulling away from a peering strategy. So this is you know large content providers, the classic examples being typically CDNs like Netflix or vastly Akamai, that sort of thing. You know, their traffic patterns may change where it may be more efficient for them to essentially place caches into eyeball networks versus participating in exchanges. So they may pull out of small exchanges because they believe that there is a more efficient way to deliver those bits. Uh, and as also Jim mentions, there are providers which um, don't want to work with what they, uh, I guess, basically determine as a, a local threat, a direct competitor, or they believe you should be a customer. So another good example of this would be Comcast. Again, uh, I don't wanna pick on Comcast as the the only MSO, uh, but they invested pretty heavily about a decade in participating uh, in in the global internet community. And one of the things they did was show up at internet exchanges, uh, but not necessarily, again, participate on the IX. They just use it as basically a a sales mechanism. Uh, Koj and other providers have done this in the past too. Uh, Is almost like, you know, a, a lead generation source. Um, there are other ISPs that are the complete opposite, so Hurricane Electric being sort of the classic global example. When hurricane shows up at an internet exchange, immediately all of the local transit pricing drops to normal, urbanized, large tier one NFL city rates, uh, even in really small markets. So there are pluses and minuses mm-hmm. of these larger global providers showing up at your internet exchange. But again, as mentioned, there are a lot of politics on the, the financial operation of an organization. Again, whether you're perceived as a potential competitor or a future or past customer, um, there's just a lot to consider. Again, that's really only the larger organizations that sort of run into those challenges. If you're a traditional enterprise uh, a smaller content provider, or even a smaller ISP, or a, an access layer network, you're probably not going to run into those. You'll just get a, a response back that says, sorry, you don't qualify for RBGP session. Let's talk a year from now. Uh, but generally, that's going to be limited to, to large organizations.
0: We pause the episode for some thinking about end-to-end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I I have lost the battle. Your your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the Internet as WAN and VPN tunnels or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds, so... How's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure. So you lean into Itential and it's gonna help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And, And all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control, be confident about what your network actually is with the ITENTIAL platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the ITENTIAL platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. Itential also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask Itential to execute the configuration task and Itential makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. All right, so Itential does a lot, and so maybe you're worried that Itential is gonna require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, Itential is meant to be easy to use. For instance, Itential's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system. End-to-end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. Itential. Find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. That's itential.com slash packetpushers. And now back to today's episode. You've both talked about politics tied, at least indirectly, to to money. Now, uh, Jim, I know Neenix is nonprofit. Matt, is SF Mix also nonprofit? Yeah, we're actually
1: a five hundred one c twelve, so we're an, actually a nonprofit cooperative.
0: So, okay, H- how then, if since money does play a role in some of what goes on at IXP? How do you both dealing with a nonprofit scenario? How do you keep the lights on?
2: The answer is you have to charge something uh, for the connection and different IXs operate on different models. Uh, Some IXs uh, have essentially some corporate or uh, benevolent sponsorship uh, where they maybe don't have to pay for co-location everywhere that they are located. Uh, Maybe they are given donations of equipment and, and optics and things like that. And then others, you know, have to charge a modest uh, monthly fee or quarterly fee or annual fee. Uh, That's what Meenix does. Uh, We are charging uh, for 10 gig ports, uh, the equivalent of $500 a month. Uh, If it's less than a 10 gig port, it's free. Uh, You can connect for free at one gig. But, you know, there has to be some amount of revenue flowing in because we do have expenses because we have to pay for, Uh, data center co-location space, which isn't free, and power, which definitely isn't free. Um, And, you know, we need to have some level of budget to run the organization, you know, basic things like, you know, an annual accounting and uh, insurances and stuff like that, and have some provision to have some additional spare equipment available so that we can keep the lights on.
0: Well, and you mentioned a uh, 10 gig port for the equivalent of 500 a month and sub 10 gig for, for quote unquote free. But if I'm connecting to the IXP to, to, to you, to Nenix, I've still got to have some kind of a, a circuit that's connecting me to you.
2: So I'm still paying for something on my end, right? Absolutely. And and that's one of the big things I always remind people is that in all of this peering world, and even in, in the transit world, you have all these network operators that are connecting to each other and exchanging traffic and, Very often, there isn't a monetary exchange, but that doesn't mean it doesn't cost you anything because you have all kinds of costs. you got to have fiber in and out of a facility, some sort of cross connect, which is probably going to cost you way more than you'd like it to cost you. Uh, You've got engineers, you've got routers and ports and optics and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things to look at there is you need to have a network that's capable of speaking BGP. At one of these physical locations that has an IXP present. And as Jim mentions, there's various prereqs for that. A cross connect is basically cabling, you know, from one cabinet to another. There may be a patch panel in the middle. Typically, data center providers want to charge you for that cabling every month, or maybe there's an annual fee. So there's, there's definitely some prerequisites to join an IXP um, that are sort of external to your organization. The IXP itself is really focused on you know, running that basic infrastructure. So yeah, as mentioned, you know, switches and the switches may have some advanced capabilities such as encapsulating layer two and some highly available manner. Uh, We can go in specifics what some of those protocols would be, but all the underlying infrastructure too. So optics, cabling, uh, maybe transport between various data centers. Uh, Certainly in our region in North America, there's fees with ARIN or the regional internet registry. So the IXP will typically have a Flash 24, at least for the V4 space. And of course, there's, you know, route servers that may be uh, virtualized or containered. Um, and even, you know, sort of little things that you wouldn't think of. Um, we tend to do like swag, you know, we'll print out T-shirts or have a barbecue every couple years. And that really brings the community together. And the T-shirts are basically sort of outbound marketing. Uh, mm-hmm. People really like to see their logo and see their AS listed and, you know, sort of proud of... Participating in that local infrastructure
0: now physically an IXP is not some magical brick building I drive up to. It's the IXP. Is it what is it really? Is it just I'm coloed in a well connected facility somewhere?
1: You you may be. So there are a lot of ways to reach an IXP. One of the more efficient ones is to have a cabinet in some rack space in a carrier neutral data center where you can pick and choose not only transit providers but also IXPs that are within that building hopefully a cross connect way. That's not the only way to connect to an IXP. Well, well wait may a minute. Be, If
0: you're the IXP yourself, though, is really what I'm asking. I mean, you as the IXP are, 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 well, I think you said it a little bit earlier. You're in that carrier-neutral facility, let's say.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's literally just a switch that's in some rack. There's yeah. there's not <laughs> a lot, you know, maybe, maybe there's some servers. Um, I think at our rack, we have branded, you know, camp coffee mugs at the bottom uh, for storage um so it's not there's not a lot of infrastructure required the the challenge with IXPs is that placing a single switch in one building is pretty easy you're limited by the port speeds of the switch and the backplane the challenge begins as an IXP becomes more distributed and they're connecting multiple buildings together and you can think of that both technically, you know, do you use stacking? Do you use DWDM or what is the infrastructure in between? But also it's getting that space and power and other facilities. And again, you may be using some third party or running that infrastructure uh, in between those switches at different locations. So for SF Mix, we basically start in downtown San Francisco and we eventually snake our way all the way down to Silicon Valley into San Jose. And we have various ways of doing that some of our participants will donate us infrastructure uh, here's a 10 gig or 100 gigabit connection and that may be a wave it may be mpls it's yeah. some sort of encapsulation and in other locations we've gotten big enough that we pay for a dark fiber and we run dwdm optics and we light it ourselves so it really just depends on you know where the traffic is and what's justified and what's cost efficient you know again typically ixps will start in one building the space and power is typically donated It's typically like a 1RU sort of data center class switch, but over time, it will grow, and then it may become a a larger chassis-based switch. It may involve dark fiber. It may involve WDM and other sorts of transport equipment, Uh, but it's really, in the beginning, just a a layer-2 platform.
0: And 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 it's a layer-2 network, even as it spreads out. It continues down that road?
1: Yeah. So that's one of the things that's that's kind of strange about IXPs is that, you know, when you think about networking in the enterprise or cloud today, it's all about how do we scale? And it's typically layer three, Um, you know, whether that's class or, you know, some sort of VPC that we're configuring. Uh, IXPs basically, again, are just an airport. You know, it's just a conduit. And the airport doesn't dictate, again, you need to have Boeing or Airbus or what's the height of your plane or what's the type of food you serve on your airline. It's just a facilitator of that. So many IXPs, as they grow, um, layer two running spanning tree is really not ideal. Uh, As we know, spanning tree is not a redundancy protocol. Uh, It's geared to prevent loops. And so a lot of IXPs, as they grow and become multi-site, they will run a more extensive switching platform. Uh, Commonly right now, it's typically VXLAN-based. That's probably the most efficient and cost-effective way to do layer two encapsulation in a redundant manner. Historically, it was VPLS, which was a lot more expensive. Hmm. Uh, But again, it's now basically sort of data center interconnect or kind of cloud-based technologies that are really efficient at, at scaling layer two. Because again, the IXP is basically saying every participant gets an IP address out of my slash 24 or my slash 64, you negotiate the sessions. We will provide a route server as sort of that easy button for those that choose to use the route server, but we're just providing the conduit. And as Jim mentioned, there are some rules of the road. So again, IXPs will typically filter only allowing V4 and V6 IP frames. And any prerequisites or, you know, neighbor discovery for V6 and ARP for V4, everything else is dropped. They don't want to see uh, DCP or CDP or LDP or any sort of broadcast bits or non-IP stuff doesn't belong in the exchange. It's just to facilitate uh, BGP peering between organizations. Hmm.
0: Now, Jim, Matt was just describing SF mix and how it spread from San Francisco metro area down into the valley and lots of fiber. And that's a very well connected area of the world. You and I live out in the sticks, my friend, and uh, I don't. It's not not these huge fiber plants going all over the place. So, h- how how does an IXP spread
2: out up here? With much more difficulty. Uh, so, one of the things in Maine, it was when we went to go start Nix, is. Uh, and I knew this going in anyway, that uh, there was no carrier neutral data center anywhere in the state. There was a one telecom hotel building that uh, was all raw space. If you wanted space in the building, you had to lease floor space and construct your own room. Uh, There is no carrier neutral co-location facility anywhere in Maine. Uh, And I, think there's maybe one or two in New Hampshire. Uh, So that was a challenge uh, in terms of how we could connect and where we could go and uh, so forth. And uh, we fortunately, as I like to say, our anchor tenant is the University of Maine system. They're kind of the 800-pound gorilla uh, in terms of Internet access in the state of Maine, uh, because not only do they provide service to all the University of Maine campuses and a few other uh, notable institutions, uh, but they also are the network operator for all of the K-12 schools in the state and all okay. the public libraries. So they were able to help us with some resources and some access to fiber uh, and certainly some operational help uh, but, uh, you know, j- the, the whole concept of having multiple facilities where you could actually get in and out of at reasonable costs is, is just kind of mind blowing to me up here in the Northeast where, you know, we, we regularly have uh, IP transit prices in excess of $5 a megabit per month. Mm. And uh, a lot of the non-neutral data center operators want to charge you $800 a month to get into their facility.
0: Not to be clear, people that maybe aren't familiar with the geography up here might think, well, New York City, isn't that in you know, the northeast U.S.? Boston, isn't that the northeast U.S.? Those are well-connected. We're talking further north of that thing, close to the Canadian border where there's a lot of trees, there's some moose, there's just not a lot of infrastructure up here.
2: Right, and that and that's fairly common in a lot of areas in the United States. We we have uh, you know a very big country in terms of mileage. Uh, same thing in Canada, uh, but the density isn't always there. Uh, so that's certainly a challenge and an opportunity. Um, and again, the, that whole reason of why did we start the exchange because we didn't want to see all of our traffic going you know five states away and coming back. Yeah, out to Chicago or New York or wherever, and coming back exactly.
1: Yeah, I would also caution that you know Jim and I have sort of blinders on, is that we're representing nonprofit internet exchanges. There are certainly commercial uh, internet exchange operators too, and those are typically large. I would call them incumbent uh, international data center operators in our market. Uh, that's probably Equinix and Digitality, you know, throughout North America they will operate IXPs only within their facilities. So if you choose to go to their facility uh, and reach the providers that are available there, they typically have an IXP offering just as they would offer to host servers for you or rotate backup tapes or give you spots in the shipping department, whatever you need. Um, It's just part of their portfolio. Non-profit exchanges are typically uniting direct competitors, not only on the IXP itself, but where the IXP shows up so in the case of SF mix we're in you know two digitality buildings we're in a hurricane electric building we're in a QTS building we're about to light up a core site building so we're in multiple competing data centers basically giving them all the same product or a level playing field and that's important because a lot of times when you're shopping for a data center space, you're going to submit an RFP to various providers that can give you that space and power. And you're probably going to look at things like, what are the shipping and receiving policies? And how do I park there? And is the security mm-hmm. compliant with various certifications that I might need in my organization? But the other thing to look at is, do they have an IXP in that building? Or do they have multiple IXPs? Just as you'd look at how many transfer providers are available there. You know, there's a lot of facilities that claim to be carrier neutral, but but they only have one or two actual ISPs available or maybe zero internet exchanges. And there are some facilities that have hundreds of, you know, ISPs available and maybe dozens of IXPs available.
0: You just said buyer beware, okay. So (laughs) in in, in other words, it's worth knowing what the facility actually is offering you before you make that connection. You go, yay, it's a carrier neutral facility. But if you're only connecting to, you know, yeah, one other carrier, then that's not that exciting right? Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, Hurricane Electric is a really interesting organization in our community. They run a global backbone, but also operate a data center. And that's pretty rare in our space. Typically, you're on one side or the other. You know, you're a Lumen, formerly CenturyLink, uh, an MTT, a ZEO. You typically are running, you know, IP networks or transport networks around the world, or you're running buildings, you know, bricks, security, uh, shipping and receiving like an Aquinix or a Digitality. The overlap between the two is is pretty minimal. So in the case of HE, you know, Hurricane basically uses their global network as lead generation to encourage customers to colo in their building. They make more money actually hosting servers and equipment than they do running a global network. Uh, and that's quite interesting. So there's some really interesting players that you'll see in in the scene of of IXPs that you wouldn't necessarily expect.
0: Hmm. Well gentlemen, I want to talk about hardware um and software, but uh, but I want to understand what's actually in the rack because we've just kind of said generically switches and it's a layer 2 infrastructure which brings to mind anything from some kind of low-end closet switch to a big monster chassis switch that can, you know, handle terabits of throughput and so on. What do you need, um, or what are you guys running in your, be specific if you want, what are you guys running in the racks for your IXPs?
1: Well, I think initially IXPs are typically bootstrapped. So we began with a CAD OS 6500. Now, again, this was 15 plus years, and that's what someone had sitting in their rack not being utilized. So, you know, you you start with what's available to you. Now, typically, you want to have a switch platform that's heavy uh, for fiber-based infrastructure, because uh, mostly it's efficient, but it's, it's definitely more efficient to have uh, fiber capability to support different port speeds. You know, starting at one gig, up to 100 gig or, or multiples of that. On the technical side, more recently, I would say it's uh, big buffer switches. Uh, a lot of that has to do with different size organizations connecting to the IXP, so there may be a small mom and pop um, uh, eyeball provider that has say micro tick uh, routers and they connect to one gig uh, versus say a large CDN.
0: Okay, Go ahead. so it's a circuit mismatch problem where someone's connecting in via 10 or maybe even a hundred gig and someone else is connecting at you know a sub 10. And so you need the big buffer so that as the connection ramps up between those two entities that are exchanging data, uh the buffer handles the the temporary mismatch while tcp settles down
1: exactly and again and that's that's a a medium size ixp that needs to care about that when you're when you're less than you know 20 gigs of aggregate throughput it's not an immediate concern but yeah as you rightfully mentioned as you get these larger dynamic size organizations that are sending very different traffic loads uh, big buffers are basically not optional anymore
2: so when we started uh, at Neenix, we got donations of Switchgear, and there's a, there's an organization that we should mention called Packet Clearinghouse, or pch.net, and uh, one of their missions is to help IXs come into existence uh, around the world globally. And they have uh, organizations that donate to them and help support them, like Cisco Systems, so uh, we received through packet clearinghouse when we started uh, a donation of a couple of um, cisco uh, nexus switches i i forget the exact model
1: i think i think we got but, the same i think it was like a 9k series yeah, yeah.
2: and that was great that was that represented a, a real cost that we didn't have to bear uh, and we're still using those on our side because uh, we haven't grown as much as uh, people like Matt have.
0: <laughs> so, but but a fixed config switch, probably with um, prime focused on optics. So you're not going to be doing copper as much as needing to slide an optical module in there of some sort. And uh, big buffers, okay, uh, you know, on the chipset to, to handle that. You're going to grow into that encapsulation capability we talked earlier about uh, vxlan maybe vpls in the past but uh, jim would you agree vxlan is the is the way forward is that what you're seeing
2: yeah i that's what i would say uh nenix isn't isn't there yet because we only operate two physical locations so that's yeah. that's a very easy uh topology to keep oh, straight
0: you're not as worried about having to do layer three to keep a stable infrastructure since you've only got the two sites so you're still uh, kind of kind of a flat layer too?
2: We are at the moment. And, and a lot of IXs are relatively flat uh, layer two until you get, you know, into that, you know, four or five, yeah. six plus sites.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, route servers, we've mentioned that'd be part of your infrastructure, but that wouldn't necessarily be a switch. That could be just some Linux box off to the side running whatever your flavor is of, uh, of BGP. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. A, a route reflector uh, bird is uh, one particular one that's uh, that's popular, mm-hmm. but, you know, some sort of uh, usually virtual machine. Uh, and and it's important to note with route reflectors is uh, you want more than one. You really want two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then you encourage all of your members to build sessions to both of your route servers. So that way you can conduct maintenance operations without completely taking everybody down.
0: And do you have uh, some kind of monitoring, troubleshooting sort of infrastructure as well?
1: Yeah, so I would say that part of the goal of the IXP is to be as resilient as possible in a cost-effective manner for its participants. So as Jim mentioned, you wanna have, you know, greater than one route servers for that easy button of BGP. That typically means you're running those route servers on, on different hardware potentially different BGP software. So we use both uh, OpenBSD. They have a BGP daemon that actually ships with the operating system. And we also use Bird, I believe, under Ubuntu. So there's some redundancy there in terms of sort of the the stack, if you will, or the underlying hardware. And I've completely forgotten what the original question was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're just, yeah, we're we're talking through just all the um, uh, monitoring, troubleshooting sorts of things that you might have. Yeah
1: got it so yeah there's definitely um i would say a formalized process to connecting to an ixp and and part of that is joining the ixp and the turn up process is slightly different than buying transit so again you'll connect to the ixp and that again may be an email or a form that you submit this is my as i want to connect to one gig or 10 gig or whatever the speed is here's my mac address etc That process is usually kicked off by the IXP issuing an LOA. Um, This is an old terminology known as a letter of authorization, typically a PDF file that says, we, the IXP, grant X organization permission to run a cable into our cabinet, and we'll plug it into XYZ port. So that's the physical layer. And once you're connected, typically the IXP will run you through a quarantine process. Uh, This is not as... uh, that is that the dreaded triple S with the TSA or some of the, the traveling assumptions that people think about when it comes to, to quarantine, but it's really verifying that your equipment is, for example, not leaking broadcast protocols. You're not uh, leaking your OSPF or ah, your IGP okay. into the, that happens regularly. A lot of times, you know, it may be my first time I've connected to an IXP. So you may be leaking your IGP. You don't want to do that. Uh, you certainly don't want to leak broadcast protocols, uh, that may be useful within your network, again, LDP, CDP, et cetera, those don't belong on an inter-exchange. So the, the quarantine process allows the IXP to validate that your configuration is acceptable. And that could be as simple as a dedicated VLAN with a Linux box running a really fancy, you know, TCP dump uh, syntax that say, let me look for all these gotchas that you shouldn't be doing. Um, so that's the, the process of sort of validating that you're, uh, running sort of the right netiquette, if you will.
0: Yeah, you've got to have enough there as the IXP to be able to see what's coming in, uh, deal with troubleshooting, perform maintenance. It, you're, you're just, it's just another network. You just like all the things that you would have as a network operator, any network, you guys have it in IXP, you're not flying blind. It's all very serious and monitored and all the rest.
1: Yeah, I mean, every location that we have started off with this to switch. And then over time we put servers in distributor locations. And now every location, we have a dedicated out-of-band network. So we have a, a dedicated circuit. We build essentially a star topology VPN on the management port of every switch. So we have a completely separate you know, control plane to manage the switches themselves, uh, separate from the IXP. Uh, we use Libre NMS. That's an open source uh, network monitoring system that's really interesting because it's basically set it and forget it to some extent. Um, it basically has templates that says, "Okay, this is an Arista switch in our case," and it will generate, you know, graphs for a DB of all the optics and temperature graphs of fans and uh, baseboard that sort of thing. Uh, just by giving it an IP address and SNMP community, boom, you get a bunch of data. Then you can normalize that. So we do little tricks like all of our peering ports that are facing a participant. The port description actually says, you know, peer and the name of the organization and the AS number. So we can actually do monitoring and says, okay, if it's a peering port that has that port description, we don't care if it goes up and down, the participant can have their own maintenance. But if the port is labeled transport, it's our own internal IXP infrastructure to another building or another switch. We want to be notified if that goes down immediately.
2: Firewalls or security? Not really a concern outside of your management plane to to actually run the IX. Um, there's it, you know we I think all IXs pretty much have a hands off traffic policy. Other than policing those broadcast protocols and and layer layer two frames that just shouldn't be there. Um, we have we have no control over what you're doing. And, and those IP packets. Uh,
0: okay, that's what I expected that you would say. All right. Well, let, let's dive into the, uh, the 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 customer connection a bit, um, because we've we've alluded to some of the concerns that you guys don't want certain kinds of like management layer two frames showing up at the IXP side and so on. So, what what does that look like from my side if I am getting ready to bring up my connection to the IXP?
2: What sort of well, what sort of a router do I have first of all? Practically any kind of router that can do BGP. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a quote unquote, big iron router. Depends on your network. I think it's also important to point out that uh, IX's are generally very helpful and friendly, particularly with newbies or new organizations connecting to the IX. Um, you know, we're not necessarily going to handhold you every step of the way, but there's lots of turn up and implementation guides and we'll answer questions and we'll work with a new member to help them figure out the config that they need because you know particularly in the enterprise world a lot of times this is this is kind of new for your typical uh, enterprise operator
0: now i said router but that could be that could be a switch too i mean we're just getting into semantics here it needs to be something that can do layer 3 something that can run bgp
1: correct yeah yeah and I, ideally that device has the capability to have a large amount of routes installed, and you know, typically the the slang that the industry will use is the device can handle a full table of routes. Uh, that's a you know a larger capable device than your typical, say, enterprise firewall. It's going to be a device that's geared for connecting towards transit providers.
0: Now, why would I need a full table of BGP routes? In theory, I would care about what's coming in from the IXP that are just going to be a a relatively small set of community members, right?
1: Well, again, there's kind of a a beginning sort of walk before you run sort of situation here. So you may accept just a default route from your trans provider. Again, getting you to the global internet, you may not receive full tables. You may just receive a 0.0.0, you know, default route. And the IXP routes would be a more specific that your router would say, okay, this is a specific yep. clash 22 or whatever. I'm going to go there. That's one way to start off. And typically as organizations grow, they're going to buy from multiple transit providers for redundancy or cost efficiency or etc. And as they connect to IXPs, IXPs can actually have pretty large uh, routing tables, especially when providers like Hurricane Electric or some of the CDNs show up. They're not going to be advertising a dozen routes. They may be advertising okay. you know thirty or forty thousand routes
2: or, or your more.
1: End, or more, yeah. So your, your low end switch and your low end router that is designed to take you know take a couple thousand routes and it's it's TCAM or its configuration, maybe a good way to start. But long term, if you buy a full table or multiple full table compatible router, that's gonna last you quite some time. The limitation is going to be the speeds, not the amount of routes it can install in software or hardware.
0: The argument is if I'm getting a full table from my transit provider, my ISP, and I'm connecting to maybe one or more IXPs, what I really want is to have a full-blown grown-up BGP system that takes advertisers from everybody, let BGP do what BGP does, converge on a best path via you know, AS or whatever the rules are so that I can... Uh, use whatever the best path is at a given time. The more, and I'm going to, at some point, the more different facilities I'm connected to, the more I need to know about what my upstream BGP providers are able to connect me to. Default route's just not going to be granular enough. Yeah, I might start that way default route from the ISP and specific routes from the IXP, and then off we go. But eventually, I'm going to want full tables and, and, and again, multiple full tables. So you need you need a big boy router that can deal with. Now we're into uh, a million millions of entries that BGP's got to think about and converge on before it's making forwarding decisions.
1: Yeah. And I want to clarify something that kind of blur the lines there, if you will, is that 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 router doesn't have to be a large. 15 RU, three-phase power device. It can be a, a small micro tick or a Linux box. It doesn't have to be some traditional big iron. That's gotten a lot smaller over time. But something that blurs the lines there is that, let's say you have one transit provider and you've connected to an IXP additionally. So again, you're getting those more specific routes. One of the interesting things on an IXP is that it's just a facilitator of traffic. So A lot of times, providers may sell full table transit over the IXP, and that's where the lines get blurred. Uh, So, For example, you may say, well, I don't want to pay for an additional cross-connect to reach my second transit provider. If they're already on the exchange, instead of them just advertising their customers or their internal routes to me for free, I'm going to exchange money with them and get a full table over this common infrastructure that's being run. It may also be a direct competitor, and this is very classic in maintenance examples where uh, maybe a fiber provider has an outage, a bunch of ISPs are impacted, they don't have good redundancy set up, and they share with each other. And instead of having to scramble and run around and run cables to all their various networks, if they're already in an IXP, it's a BGP Mm. session away. Uh, It's literally one or two lines of a config change to say, again, I'm not just going to advertise you my, my customers and internal routes I'll give you the full table because I know you need it right now. Hmm. Now, obviously, there's some prerequisites to actually make that adjustment. But that's one of the things that's interesting about an IXP is that, you know, again, we don't police the the traffic that gets exchanged. We are just a facilitator of that traffic. So we're not involved in in the policies or the purchasers or the the, the money that gets exchanged between participants. Uh, we're purely just that, that common conduit,
0: if you will. A follow up on your point about it not ha- your router as the customer of an IXP doesn't have to be some beastly thing. I used to run full tables. This goes back a few years, but on a pair of twenty eight hundreds, I was taking full tables in from a couple of different providers. Took a long time to converge when the PGB session first came up. Took two to three minutes before the CPU stopped screaming and everything settled down. But then it was able to keep up with churn and it was fine. And it actually failed over when it was supposed to. And it it worked. I had to add memory to it to make that happen. But yeah, it doesn't have to be this huge, huge monster uh, of a router to pull off full tables. There is a little engineering to pay attention to, but it it isn't a crazy expensive thing to have to pull off
2: right I, I totally agree and and also i think i give you some metrics here for the audience right now a full table of bgp routes for the global ipv4 internet is uh, edging up on nine hundred thousand routes uh, to store and i forget what the number is for v6 uh, what is it a couple hundred thousand or like just that. under that yeah um so at nenix as an example on the IX, if you are peering at Neenix, you're going to get around 100,000 routes from the members on the IX. So that's, you know, little more than 10% of the global internet that you'll be able to reach over the IX.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's probably a good time to have a horror story example when things can go bad. Um, you mentioned, you know, having a, a dedicated device that can speak full table routes and has the appropriate, you know, ports and Beads and feeds, if you will. One of the best practices typically is to have a dedicated router for connecting to the IXP. And part of the reason for that is that IXPs, to some extent, as they become developed, are kind of a little bit of the Wild West in terms of getting BGP sessions up and going and advertising the correct routes and accepting the right routes and and all the sort of uh, netiquette that goes with that, whether that's IRR filtering Uh, RPKI, uh, working reverse DNS, uh, the list goes on and on. So they take time to sort of mature, if you will. And an example of where this really kind of comes home is, let's say you have a single router device and you've connected to trans provider X and IXP provider Y, and the IXP creates a loop or uh, creates some sort of event that impacts your router. Well, depending on your router's configuration, that may impact your transit or even your customer or your internal connections. So, the classic example of this is an IXP created a loop and it impacted all of the participants that had a single router that, again, connected both their transit and IXP connections. There is a series of routers that have policing or basically safety features that say, hey, if I see a certain amount of ARP traffic or mm-hmm. broadcast traffic, I'm going to filter that. I'm going to rate limit that, or I'm going to drop it. But I'm not going to drop it on a particular interface that's the violator. I'm going to drop it on all interfaces. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, you know, our our one major outage in SF Mixlan was our conversion from VLANs to VXLAN and creating a loop for a few seconds. And that brought down several members because we triggered this policing that they didn't even know that their router had this functionality enabled. It wasn't explicitly in the config, and it brought down other portions of their network. And so this is something to be aware of is that, you know, BGP is not a a scary thing to learn, but in reality, there are a lot of knobs to adjust, and there are some precautions to take. Uh, And there are nothing that I would say is extremely difficult. Again, the analogy with flying You know that, you know, checked luggage is going to be limited on size. You know, if you pay more, you're going to be in the front of the plane. You know, if you want to pay a little bit more, you can get direct routing, not have to do a stopover, et cetera. Same sort of rules apply with an IXP. You have to learn how to participate in the IXP efficiently, securely, and in a way that's, you know, beneficial to your organization. That may take some time. And as Jim mentions, a lot of IXPs, especially the regional nonprofit ones, They're geared to provide that mentoring and advice. They see you as a neutral party. Even if you're a direct competitor, they want you to participate in the IXP. Because again, for example, if a lot of the eyeball networks participate in a region, it's much easier for them to court, say, a content provider and say, hey, all of the potential end users in this region are on this one platform. If you run one cable, you can reach us all. So there is a benefit of banding together, and that really does help in learning to kind of navigate uh, the rules of the road or the lessons learned or how to do things in a secure manner to not impact your organization uh, in a horrible way. <laughs> mm.
2: And I'd like to build on that in, in the sense of, uh, you know other users of IXPs, uh, a lot of the CDNs, in fact, I'd say all the CDNs of any scale are major IXP users. Uh, And in fact, companies like Fastly, like Cloudflare and others, uh, they have a global footprint. And by and large, that global footprint is co-located at all of these IXPs all over the world because it's the most cost-effective way for them to reach these networks.
1: Yeah, a really good example of that that's existed well over 20 years at this point is DNS operators. So this would be a GTLD, CCTLD, you know, various domain name operators will geographically place servers at IXPs. And we're talking of traffic levels, you know, less than 10 megabits, you know, normally. Uh, They will place infrastructure at IXPs to decrease the DNS lookup time to make that resolution faster. Uh, And this is something that PCH has done for quite some time, is they will host GTLD and CCTLD uh, domain name uh, caches at IXPs around the world. Uh, Last I looked, they were at something like 200 IXPs around the world, everywhere from Palestine to Boston, um, in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect an IXP to exist to a market that's very well-developed and mature. Um, So we have, I think, half of the the DNS root server operators have some sort of cache on SFMix. Uh, and that's a mixture of, you know, commercial operators like VeriSign to nonprofit operators uh, like the wide group out of Japan. Um, they all participate in the IXP. So even there, an eyeball network immediately gets benefit mm. um, for, you know, faster DNS resolution time if a CDN hasn't shown up. This is something that Jim and I talked about uh, offline uh, as we were kind of exchanging notes of our CVs and how we've developed in the networking community. You know, you normally an IXP starts off heavily on again local eyeball networks. You know, folks that are consuming the internet. Then you trickle in a research and education networks. In our case, that would be scenic in the state of California. Uh, you'll eventually trickle in sort of municipalities, uh, government entities, but eventually you really want content providers. Again, those CDNs, um, and that could be a Netflix or Fastly and Akamai, that sort of thing. That's the the most efficient mix is content and eyeballs kind of equally distributed because they have a natural motivation between each organization you know you want to see your videos fast they want to serve it to you fast uh, it's a very reciprocal uh, uh, mutual benefit
0: i mean going back to the customer connection then i mean i really need to engineer that router uh, also considering the amount of data I'm running through that, which is is obvious, I guess, right? It's You consider that as a network engineer for any sort of a WAN circuit that you're putting in, how much data am I pumping across this pipe? So depending on your use case and your purpose, that's gonna drive what the equipment in as well. Now, another point that's come up here, talking about the customer connection, if I'm plumbing to the IXP with a switch, L2 design, part of that is just be a good citizen. I should not be sending L2 control and management frames, CDP and LLDP, spanning tree uh, BPDUs, et cetera. None of that should be sending into the IXP. Okay, so let's assume I've done that. I've made it out of quarantine, so to speak. I'm ready to stand (laughs) up my layer three connectivity Um, what am I bringing to the party there as the customer? I assume I've got to have, what, some kind of independent address space and maybe an ASN already assigned to me?
2: It doesn't have to be independent space, but you have to have your own IP space, uh, v4 and v6, uh, preferably both. and there's at a certain minimum size and generally on the Internet, the accepted standard for the smallest uh, IPv4 prefix that's going to be routed is a slash 24. So as long as you have at least a slash 24 as an organization to announce onto the IX to the peers, uh, you're good to go. You, you, of course, also need an ASN. Okay.
1: Yeah, and again, as we talked about in the beginning, the, the ASN is your unique identifier on the internet. Your IP space may come and go as your customers join your network or leave your network, but your AS is your unique identifier on, on the global internet. So yeah, as Jim mentions, you need both to participate um, in an IXP.
0: Am I actually going to be standing up like a trunked L2 connection with one q or is this a true layer three connection typically, or, or does it depend?
1: It, it totally depends. I mean, typically for an IXP, uh, it's a layer three connection, looks like an access port. Uh, the IXP behind the scenes may be using, again, VLANs or VXLANs or VPLS or some sort of encapsulation technology to present that, that common layer two network for you. But it's, it's typically at layer three. Where you would consider a trunk port, again, one physical connection with different sort of logical network segments, uh, would be if the IXP has some special service offerings. Uh, A good example of this would be in the early days when V6 was considered sort of novelty, which is certainly not the case anymore, there'd be a separate VLAN to sort of experiment with V6. That's really gone out of favor, I'd say, in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, where it still exists as if the IXP says, well, we want to offer jumbo frames like 9K support, or we want to do a multicast network. Um, There's some actual IXPs that got started for uh, carriers, cell carriers, to exchange SMS or signaling traffic. Um, they wanted to be on a special VLAN that's segmented from your typical enterprise um, for security reasons or compliance or whatever. So it's typically when the IXP is offering sort of non-standard offerings, but for the most part, it's, it's gonna be a layer three access
2: board. Yeah. yeah, And, and that's gonna be for the standard IXs. Um, the commercial IXs, a lot of them now are offering additional connectivity options. Usually, as a separate VLAN, uh, so that you can buy things like AWS and Microsoft Azure Direct Connect, uh, sorts of services, using the same peering port. But those services are something you pay for additionally, both to the IX operator and to the, you know the folks at Amazon.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good way to I guess also blur the lines again, in that there are. What I would call layer two as a service providers around the world, uh, Packet Fabric, Megaport, IX Reach, et cetera, and a lot of those organizations, their genesis was exposing IXPs to customers that didn't have a presence in that carrier neutral data center. They would come to you and say, "Here's a trunk port, VLAN 12 is you know SF Mix, VLAN 13 is NTT Internet." land 15 is your competitor down the street that sort of thing. So a lot of those you know layer 2 uh, as a service around the world providers they started carrying you know IXPs or exposing IXPs initially but as jim mentions there's a very diverse ecosystem. They can provide you direct cloud connectivity, they can provide you connectivity to transit providers in addition to IXP. So there's there's lots of options there in terms of how you connect to an IXP.
0: Now, let's say this whole IXP thing is really interesting to me, but I have never heard of this before. How would I find an IXP in my area that I want to connect to?
1: Well, there's a good industry resource called uh, PeeringDB.com, P-E-E-R-I-N-G-D-B.com. That's essentially a database of the facilities that host IXPs, a list of the IXPs themselves, and the participants that show up at those IXPs so you can search by AS you can search by a uh, physical street address or zip code search by IP space etc uh, it's a good way to sort of have a i guess the TV guide equivalent of what's available sort of out in the world and PeeringDB db is global it's not specific to the the north american market you know one thing that's useful is knowing some of your traffic flows ahead of time so if you have some NetFlow or as flow or some sort of analysis that says yeah you know 50 percent of my traffic goes to netflix Hmm. if you go to peering db you'll find out oh here's netflix's as and here's the facilities that they show up at i need to show up at one of those to access that as that my flow data says most my traffic is going to Hmm.
0: yeah and i know there's um there's commercial tools like Kentik that specialize in some of this analysis that can help you optimize your connectivity and so on too. So, okay, peeringdb.com. And you mentioned Packet Clearinghouse earlier. They have a directory too, it looks like.
1: They do. Yeah. So the Packet Clearinghouse directory is really just a list of IXPs. It doesn't list the actual participants or ASs available at uh, each location. And they're really tracking sort of the Telegeography equivalent of IXPs around the world. They've produced a map of that for, again, probably 20 plus years at this point. Uh, another one would be the uh, IXP uh, Federation, IXF. That's sort of a global organization of various IXP operators. They also have a database, but generally, peeringdb.com is where most folks are going to find this information.
0: Very good. Well, let's talk about you guys for a minute. Uh, Jim, starting with you, if people want to follow you on the Internet, ask you questions about Neenix, how can they get in touch with you?
2: So I am at Troutman on Twitter. And as we have already established, I spend way too much time on Twitter. Uh, Neenix has a uh, Twitter account also uh, at, at Neenix, N-N-E-N-I-X. Our website is uh, Neenix.net for information on peering. And uh, in, in my day job, I continue to work for uh, Tilson Tech, running Tilson Broadband in Vermont. And Matt, same question to you.
1: Yeah, on the social medias, it's at uh, dorkmatt, D-O-R-K-M-A-T-T. Uh, SFMix is obviously also on uh, Twitter. We are sfmix.org for our website. And my day job is a consulting entity called 2P. Uh, we fix networks and build networks in strange places.
0: Great stuff. Thanks you both uh, for sharing your time and all your knowledge about IXPs. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter, ethancbanks.com. And if you enjoyed this show, you can get more great engineering stuff from Packet Pushers all for free and with your privacy respected. We really do take that seriously. For example, we got a weekly newsletter, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. We do not sell your email address to anyone. We just send you engineering and opinion stuff about the IT industry. It's got a focus on networking and cloud, all to make you better at your career. We have a Slack group, and that Slack group is at packetpushers.net slash Slack. It's a global chat group. There's over 1800 engineers from around the world in there now. Some of them work for vendors, some of them work for big companies, some for small companies, some are consultants, but everyone is there to help each other out. I just went back through some of the chat history, recent conversations have included topics like POE strategies for access points, naming conventions for equipment, optics for DWDM gear and VPN authentication monitoring. There's a jobs channel in there too, because maybe you're looking for a new gig or you got a position to fill. You can use that it's all for free. If you're a social creature, follow us on Twitter. We're at Packet Pushers and you can find us on LinkedIn as well. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.